It is, um, it is so good to be back at St. James today. Uh, Margaret and I, Margaret is here in the crowd. Um, we came down early today and uh, we were going to be with St. James all morning. And it is a joy to be here. Um, normally, you know the routine. I will come one year and then Bishop Shin will come the next and then Bishop Glasspool. And then you get me again and we do that. But the last few years have been interrupted by global pandemic. And so it's been a little while since I've been here at St. James, and it's a delight to be back. This is a flagship parish of the Diocese of New York. Uh, this is a wellspring of spiritual resource, but also of mission and ministry that serves this city, the wider diocese, and the larger church. And um, I'm... Uh, uh, delighted to have been able to meet with the vestry today and to sit for a little while with the confirmands. A great class of young people will be presented for confirmation here in just a little bit. Brenda and I had lunch on Thursday, and it's been a while since uh, we've been able to sit down and talk as friends because, of course, COVID. But, uh, but now we were able to do that, and it was wonderful to spend some time catching up. She and I are both in the retirement queue. And so, you know, we had some thoughts to share about what we're doing now and what we think we're going to be doing in a few years. And that was great. It's good to be with her here today and to be at this altar. It's also great to be here with um, Zach and Ava and James and Jay Seibotham, who I did not expect to see today. So it's great to see you, Jay, and to be here with... Uh, I think I got, I think I named all of the clergy and the lay leaders of this church. I have so many friends in this congregation and among the leadership of this church, and it's just wonderful to be with you and uh, be able to uh, celebrate the Eucharist and to join you for these scriptures and our time together. So thanks for having me. This is the fourth Sunday in uh, Easter. And the theme is always, this is often called Good Shepherd Sunday. The theme for this Sunday is Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And uh, there are a number of gospel passages related to that teaching. They all occur in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. And each year we hear a different part of that. And today we've heard the story of Jesus walking in the portico of Solomon at the temple in wintertime and then in his encounter with a group of people who want to know if he is the Messiah. And then he answers that and it doesn't go very well. And that's the story we have today. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that, but I want to take a slightly roundabout route to get there. So you know that bishops walk with a staff, and it's shaped like a shepherd's crook. So one day a few years ago, um, I went to do a wedding, and I arrived at the church, and the groom's grandson was there, and the groom said, uh, look, here's the bishop, and what is he holding? Who walks with staffs like that? And the little, the little boy said, old men. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's true. Uh, but, but bishops walk with those staffs and for other reasons. So I have a very lightweight, really simple wooden crozier that I have here today and that I take with me everywhere I go. But at the cathedral, I have a very, very fancy one that's just 
hugely heavy and sometimes difficult to, to walk around with. And uh, it, it is a, a replica of the crozier of Bishop Richard Fox, who was baptized by, uh, who baptized Henry VIII and was a bishop in the 16th century. And in 1920, the Bishop of London had a replica of his crozier made and gave it to the Bishop of New York to sort of celebrate the friendship between the Diocese of London and the Diocese of New York, and to celebrate the Anglo-American alliance, which had just won the First World War. So I've got this crozier. I only use it at the cathedral. It's too heavy to haul around. It's almost too heavy to use at the cathedral. It's very, very ornate and uh, architectural, but there it is. So about six, seven years ago, I get a message from Corpus Christi College in England, a college that was founded by Bishop Fox in the 16th century. And they said, we're going to be having an exhibition in New York, and we're bringing Bishop Fox's crozier with us. Will you bring yours so we can get the two of them together again? And I said, sure, I'll do that. Now, the reason for the exhibition was this. And by the way, there is a point to this story. <laughs> the reason for the exhibition was this. Up until the 16th century, nobody ever read, no Christian ever read the Old Testament in Hebrew or the New Testament in Greek. Now, those are the languages that they were written in, but everybody believed that God speaks Latin, and it was the language of the Roman church, and so everything was done in Latin. All the scriptures were read in Latin, but Richard Fox, a little bit ahead of his time, he said, I think we should be reading it without translation. We should read the original text. So he began to amass a great collection of uh, medieval, liturgical, and scriptural works written in Hebrew and Greek, the original languages of the Bible, and amassed this great library, and that, that belongs to Corpus Christi College in England, and they decided to send the books on the road. And they took them to the Folger Library, and then they brought them to New York, and they had an exhibition of them at Yeshiva Museum at a Jewish University. And uh, most of the books, most of the manuscripts were all Hebraica, Jewish works from the Middle Ages, which Richard Fox had collected. So they said, we're going to have this exhibition. We're going to have Richard Fox's crozier there. Please bring your crozier down. I think this was the first time my crozier had ever had a field trip and, and left the cathedral to go somewhere else. And I had to park five blocks away from the museum. And so I had to walk down the streets of Chelsea, um, walk in with that crozier. <laughs> you get a lot of attention when you do that. But I did that, and then I got there, and they had a big glass case, freestanding, that they had made. And in the glass case was Richard. I had, there is a point to this story. And there was Richard Fox's crozier standing in the glass case. And I said, well, here's, here's mine. And they said, okay, go stand next to Richard Fox's and just hold it. So I did that. And we were very near the door. When people came in, the first thing they would see would be Richard Fox's crozier and me and my crozier. And so when the exhibition opened, a lot of people came. And people came streaming in. And almost all of them were Jewish because the exhibition was of Jewish medieval texts written in Hebrew. And they came to see these great documents from their tradition. So here they came, but the first thing they saw was this Christian crozier. So they came in, 
Now I'm getting to the point. So people came in and they immediately came over to me and they said, what is this? And I said, well, inside the case is Bishop Richard Fox who collected all these manuscripts. This was his crozier as the Bishop of Winchester in England. And this one that looks just like it is mine uh, as Bishop of New York. And they said, well, what's, what's the crozier for? And I said, well, we, we walk with it, but it's actually a symbol of jurisdiction. You know, we're in two years, we're gonna have a new bishop in New York. And if you come to his, in, his or her installation, there will be a moment when I give this crozier to that person, at which point the authority of this diocese has been transferred. So it's a mark of jurisdiction of the person who has responsibility for the diocese. I said, this was Richard Fox's in Winchester. This is mine in New York. And they said, what's, what's the point of it? What's it about? And I said, well, you, do you see how, you know, it's kind of ornamented, so it's hard to tell, but you see how it's shaped like a shepherd's crook? They said, yes. I said, that's because bishops are pastors, which is the Greek word for shepherd. They said, well, why is that? I said, well, think about the whole tradition. Think about your own. King David, who said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. David took the image of the shepherd and ascribed that to God. He used that image to talk about God's care of the people, the image of the shepherd. And if you go to Isaiah, you're going to find lots of language about the suffering servant and about the sacrificial lamb and, and language of shepherds and sheep herding all as metaphor and allegory for what goes on in our faith. But I said, if you continue on and you look in the Christian tradition in the New Testament, you're going to find the place where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this man said, as I said, we're getting to the point. He said, what? I said, well, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He said that? Jesus said he was the good shepherd? That the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? Now a crowd is gathering. And we're talking about all this. And we had a, and I said, yeah, he said, where can I read that? I said, well, the Gospel of John is the fourth book in, in the Christian uh, scriptures, and all of the Good Shepherd passages happen in the 10th chapter of that book. So it's easy to find, look it up, and you'll see everything Jesus has to say on the subject. And then we kind of moved on. But I came away from that encounter, and I thought about it a lot. And I thought about how shocking that idea was to this man who was questioning me. And when we look at scripture, we see that it was no less shocking to the people to whom Jesus first spoke. So we just had this reading about Jesus on the, in the portico of Solomon at the temple. The very next verse after this reading says, and then the people began to pick up stones to stone Jesus and kill him. 
And we know that when we read scriptures and we look through scriptures, we find all of these passages that say things like, after Jesus said that, no one dared uh, ask him any more questions. Or a passage that says, then the disciples said they couldn't follow Jesus anymore. Or, um, or other passages that speak of people's incredulity, their shock at the things that Jesus was saying. They were life-changing and not always in a good way. They shook things up. Jesus said things that shocked people in a deeply religious, essential way. And we see in Scripture the power of these words to really, in some cases, drive people away from Jesus forever, and in fewer cases, to bring them closer. And I stood with those Jewish people at the Yeshiva library, and I saw it. I saw the shock of these words. And that made me ask a different kind of question. Why don't these words shock me when I hear them? And I realized that we speak of good shepherd and shepherding in scripture and in the language of the faith so much that we have tamed the words. We use these words so much that I'm not sure, and this may be too stark a statement, but I think it's possible we can no longer hear them at all. And I found myself wishing that I could come to these scriptures as fresh as that Jewish man who asked me the question, that I could hear the scriptures that would shock me move me, rock me, in the same way they did him. And I don't know if it's possible to go back. I don't know if it's possible to strip off all that we have overlaid on these scriptures and get back to the shocking newness of these words and these expressions. But that night, for the first really for the first time, I had an experiential, uh, or I had an experience of seeing what I read in Scripture. People who said, we can't stand to hear this. We will not follow you anymore. We cannot listen to this teaching anymore. And suddenly I saw that and the way it lands and what it meant. So a lot of my thinking that came out of that was to ask different kind of questions. How do we believe anything? How do we come to believe? How do we take these passages, which were life-rocking, shocking statements made by Jesus to people who just couldn't believe it, and then got tamed over 2,000 years to where people no longer kind of care so much when they hear the same words? How do we take all of this and through that grow to love and follow Jesus through these same scriptures and understand them as Jesus would have us understand them. So on another occasion some years earlier, I was a priest in Massachusetts uh, in the town of West Springfield, and across the river in Springfield there was a big synagogue, and they were having their confirmation classes. They do confirmation too. And uh, I got a call, and it said, can you come over and do a one-hour presentation and explain Protestant Christianity to the kids. <laughs> and I thought, 
You mean everything from the Amish to the Orthodox and everything in between? I've got an hour, but I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. And I, I went over and I talked to the eighth graders and, uh, and talked a little bit about Christianity and Protestant Christianity, what that all meant. But I had my prayer book with me. And as I got to the end of the presentation, one of the girls said, I really like prayer books. Can I look at yours? I said, sure. So she was going through the Book of Common Prayer, flipping through, and then she closed it and looked at me and asked with a look that was like she was about to sell me some Florida swampland. And she said, do you really believe that Jesus was the Son of God? And I had to answer her right then, but somehow I knew that saying yes or no is not going to be enough. And so I thought for a second, and then I said, yes, I do. But something I want to say, I'm not sure you can understand now, but you will later when you're older. And that is that there are things that you believe without empirical evidence. There are things that you choose to believe. You decide to believe. And I think that what I would say about that in light of, of the experience of the shocking nature of the gospel is that we make the choice and the decision to believe in Jesus Christ, even with, even with all of the stumbling blocks for that, all of the barriers we have to climb over, all of the questions we have to ask but too often don't ask, that stand in front of our being able to really get to the place where we can engage Jesus in a very full and real way. But we are called into that life, and we find our way into it. And I want to say that even if we don't immediately find the teachings of Jesus to be as shocking as that group of people who encountered me at the museum, or as shocking as the people who saw Jesus on the portico of Solomon and then wanted to take him out and kill him, even if we don't find these passages that shocking on our first hearing, we will at some point in our life question them. We will find occasion to question these teachings and sayings of Jesus. And what I want to say to the confirmants today is that you are gathered here today to renew certain vows and promises made at your baptism, to renew certain vows and promises which are meant to direct your life and the choices and decisions that you will make all the time for the rest of your life, that you will, by making these promises, tell the rest of us what kind of men and women you intend to be. You will chart a course for your life here today, making promises and vows to wed yourself to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, I want you to bring all your doubts and questions and stumbling blocks into those promises. Don't be afraid to bring the same shock and doubt to the teachings of the faith that the first hearers of them did. Come into this new life, an adult life in the Christian faith and the Episcopal Church with the maturity that comes from being able to carry conflicting ideas at the same time. 
to raise up passages and teachings you don't understand, to believe or don't believe, but to come through it and on the other end say, even so, Jesus, I give my life to you. And this is what we're about in confirmation, is coming to that very hard place where we stand before God and the opportunity is given to us to make promises to God and promises to one another, and out of those promises to make the great leap of faith into that darkness where truth exists and God is in ways that we cannot easily understand or figure out or rationalize ourselves. Let it be shocking, let it be difficult, let it be hard, but let it be. And let your confirmations today be a place to step up into this new chapter in full, asking all the right questions, raising all the right doubts, being shocked if that is what you are called to do and to be, that you may believe in God in full. And it may be that one day you will open up your Bible and you will read these passages and you will say, what? He said that? And when that happens, I think you will be able to and you will be ready to make another greater leap right into the heart of God. Amen.